All right, everyone. Welcome to Magnifying God. I am your host, Adam Michael, and we have been going through a series unpacking this book called Prepare to Overcome. And we knocked out the first section, and that was actually a workbook that was created a couple years ago called Preparing the Saints. And we unpack that book, which kind of gives you a nice foundation. And then we now moved into section two of this Prepare to Overcome book. And we knocked out chapter 12, which deals with the priest of God. Now keep in mind, this whole section is called the Royal Priesthood. This is part two of the book. We went through chapter 12, which is the priest of God and what that looks like and the responsibilities the priest has. And then we went on to chapter 13, which deals with the oracle of God, the throne of God, and the garden of God. And we just dissected what each of those areas are. And then we went in a little bit more detail in those areas. And then finally now, we've hit chapter 14, the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. Now, looking at this, it's pretty amazing when you talk to people about the bride. Everybody, you know, people think, well, the church is the bride. And then you have other people say, no, the bride isn't the church. The bride is Israel. So you've got these conflicting things going on. And then it talks about how the bride has made herself ready. Now, I find that very interesting because... How many people are actually preparing for a wedding day? See, Jesus isn't coming for prayer warriors. He isn't coming for those healing ministries. He's not coming for the evangelist, the preacher, the pastor. He's coming for the bride, his bride. And we start realizing that it deals with the secret place. Are you spending time with him? Which then goes back to the Song of Solomon. I know, because I went through a wedding, I know that when things got closer to the wedding day, that's all that was on my mind. And it wasn't about the actual day, per se. It was about the person that I was marrying. It was about the person. Not about the event. And that's so important when we go through this because in Revelation, a lot of people get caught up in the event, but not in the person. And I know that I am so looking forward to the marriage that I will have with him. But what if I am not making myself ready? And then you look at scripture and you see a wedding feast where there's wedding guests, where there's 10 virgins there. I know some translations say bridesmaids. That's a poor translation because when I think of a bridesmaid, I think of a woman. And that's actually not true. It's not a woman. It was the ten virgins, and those were actually men, if you go back into the Greek. So, well, if there's a bride, then who are these wedding guests? Who are these bridesmaids? Who are these people at this big wedding feast if we all believe that we're the bride? And you got a lot of theologies out there. And I have heard many of them. But today, we are going to be dissecting this. And I've got Debbie Simpson on the line. And she's going to be really opening our eyes to who this bride is. So with that being said, Debbie, I know you're there. Uh, feel free to take it away. Thank you, Adam. Yes, I will. So I agree and concur with what you're saying. 
it is the assumption of many believers that all of the congregation of God is the bride of Christ. And so what we're going to do today is be looking at these identifying factors that God has revealed for the bride. If you're like me and you're listening, then you've been taught the scriptures identify the church as the bride, and the terms church and bride are used interchangeably. That being said, to present the idea that not all of the congregation is the bride will cause no little confusion at best, possibly at worst, outright anger. So as this material is presented, I just say withhold judgment, put this information on the shelf, don't receive it until after taking it to the Lord in prayer and asking for confirmation from him. Ask the Spirit of God to confirm with your spirit if the scriptural presentation of this issue on brideship is truth. As of many believers, my own belief was that all the church is the bride. I was not looking to challenge this belief. I wouldn't even have known to. But through my study on the oracle, very slowly and very gradually, God began presenting me with scriptures that at first glance would not have challenged this belief, but with study began to show distinctions not readily picked up with casual reading. So I'm going to share with you some of the scriptures that bear deeper consideration. First, we go to the parables. Um, when Jesus says, what is the kingdom of God, and to what shall I liken it? And we read in Matthew 25, even as you said, Adam, with regards to the ten virgins. So what we're seeing here is that five are present at the wedding feast, but they are not identified as the bride. Another example with regards to the parables, and Jesus says, what is the kingdom of God, and to what shall I liken it? We see in Matthew 22, in the same um, parable repeated in Luke 14, that it's regards to the king who sent out um, the call for the wedding guests to come to his wedding supper and the marriage supper of his son. And we saw that the guests were too busy, so he sent out his servants to the highways and byways to bring in guests for the wedding ceremony. Again, we see there's a distinction between the guests that are present and the bride that would be, have been present at this ceremony. The third scripture of interest is Revelation 19, 7 through 9. That says, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. But if you go on to verse 9, it says, and he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. Again, a distinction is made between the people groups at this marriage supper of the lamb those invited, and of course, quite obviously, then the bride. Fourth, we see in Revelation 21, verses 2 and 9, that the bride is defined as the new Jerusalem, the city that comes down out of heaven. She's distinct from the nations that inhabit the new earth. We see that the nations walk by her light and that not everyone can enter. So also we see in Revelation 22, 17 as well, that she's distinct and separated out as we see in the verse, the spirit and the bride say come. So case in point, you know, what is all this saying really? That regarding all of these scriptures, the context is heaven. Therefore, all people groups are saved. So why are some of them the bride and some are not? That was the question that I began to ask the Lord and began to seek. So now let's talk about the elephant in the room, all right? <laughs> the one and only scripture that we as believers use to bridge the terms church and bride, to make them synonymous. Ephesians 5, 23 to 33. So as you read through, um, let's make some observations. First, we see that there's a key repeated term, and that term is the word as. So we see this when it begins. And it goes, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also to the church. But as the church is being subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. So what we see here is this word as, this indicates or is indicative of a metaphor, not a definition. Let's just. Let's just take a few minutes and look at this and make just um, objective observations. We see 
the same word as used from previous scriptures that we've talked about in previous podcasts. Be as the teacher, be as the master, as he is, so are we in this world. When we use these scriptures, we do not communicate, you know, to other people that believers are Christ. They're not saying we are the teacher, we are the master. Yet, this is the application of the word as, as it's being employed here with this belief system in Ephesians. And again, the word as is indicative of a metaphor as a, and a comparison. It's not a definition. So we do see definitions in this scripture. Verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife. Christ is the head of the church. He, Christ, being the savior of the bride. So really what we want to be uh, making, it, uh, what we want to distinguish is that the word is indicates definition. The word as indicates comparison. So this observation also needs to be considered. Then as you continue through this verse, you see the Old Testament quote in verse 31. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one. Verse 32, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. We see the commentary that this union is the under, is that in this union is the understanding that houses a mystery and that this mystery is with reference to Christ and the church. So we know that the definition of mystery is a sacred thing naturally unknown to human intellect or reasoning and is only made known by revelation from God. So what is this mystery then? Um, what's been seen here is the mystery in verse 31. It talks about um, from verse 31 when it says the two shall become one flesh. Well, let's see what God's commentary is on this. If we go to Colossians 1, 25 to 27, let's see what that says. It says, Paul's talking, of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Verse 26, that is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but now has been made manifest to his saints. Verse 27, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is. Now, is is indicative of a definition. Here's a definition. The mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery, which matches perfectly with Ephesians 5.31, where it says, and the two shall become one flesh, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So here, what we're seeing is that the mystery is defined, that at conversion, the believer now houses Christ Christ in you, the hope of glory, to become one, even as referenced in verse 31 of Ephesians 5. So to recap this observation, nowhere in these scriptures or their cross-references is the Greek word bride used. Also, it cannot be definitively stated that the mystery that's referenced in Ephesians 5 is that the church of the New Testament is in some total the bride of Christ. So to take that and to believe that, you you know, you really can't go to scripture and stand on really anything except assumptions. So now let's continue though. Let's do a word study on church and a word study on bride to identify points of intersection. How do these two terms intersect that would give us um, a foundation upon which to stand to say, well, see here, they match. They're the same. So, Let's identify points of intersection with regards to, say, their definitions, the context in which they're used, the scriptural cross-references. How do they prove themselves to be related? Well, the word church is ecclesia. We all know that. And it's the Strong's Concordance number 1577. By definition, it is, quote, a collective term for the whole body, semicolon, an assembly of Christians. End quote. The word bride is nymphae. It's where we get our English word nymph, actually. 
and is defined as, quote, a betrothed woman. Its Strong's Concordance number is 3565. So what we're seeing with the Strong's Concordance number one, one of the first observations we're going to make is Ecclesia is 1577, Strong's is 3565. They are very, very far from each other in the numbering system, which means they do not share the same root. So by reason of this, we can know that they would not be synonymous for this reason. Now, they might be synonymous for another reason, but it's not because they share the same root, which oftentimes is a reason for that. Well, let's go. The definition of each also is distinctive from the other. That is, there's nothing to suggest that they are synonymous by definition. No one can come along and say that a group or an assembly of believers is synonymous with a bride in the definition, unless it's something you're just believing in your head. But by definition alone, there's nothing that would connect that. As there are, if there are there any cross-references in Scripture that use the terms bride and church interchangeably? We do. I was at a Bible last week, and it was thrown around all over the place. You know, we're the church, we're the bride. You know, we're the bride, we're the church, we're the church, we're the bride. And as easily as the word church came out, bride came out. So we know that we as believers, we use these terms interchangeably. They're synonymous to us. There is no distinction. They're one and the same. That's how we speak it. The question is, does God do this in his word? Well, the answer is no. It's an interesting observation in that the word church, ecclesia, is used 116 times in the New Testament. That's a lot of times. And the word bride is only used five, and out of those five times, only three times is the word bride used in reference to the bride of Christ. The other two times, it's just the, the, the references to you know the sound of the bride and the bridegroom will no longer be heard, but it's not referencing the bride of Christ. So we have 116 times church is used, three times bride is used. Had it been God's intention to communicate that these terms are synonymous, and could be used interchangeably, he would have done so in the 116 opportunities in the scriptures to exchange the word church for bride. He did not. That is significant. If we're going to handle the word of God accurately, then we got to handle it the way God handles it. That's the point. We got to handle the word of God the way God handles the word of God. God only used the word bride in reference to the Bride of Christ three times in the entire New Testament, only three. So we need to be careful if we're throwing it out there a thousand times a day, including it in any reference to the church. So as we progress through the study, it'll become apparent that all of the Bride does come from out of the church, but not all of the church will qualify to be the Bride. The idea presented that the royal priesthood and the bride as being a distinct class of believer is shocking when first heard. Trust me. I didn't tell anyone this. I was just absolutely um, just bowled over. I mean, I was like, Lord, this can't be true. I mean, I, can't, there, there, I must be missing something. So it is shocking. As believers, we look to the cross and we state this truth, and this is true that the cross of Christ levels the playing field, that there's no partiality with God. It is just levels the playing field for any and all who come to Christ prior to salvation. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, prominent or common. We all know this. Again, this is not Christianity 101. And that's the other thing. I've made a couple comments throughout. And these are this is a higher degree of maturity, a deeper level of understanding. I'm not saying this to be prideful. I'm saying this is the truth as you walk through this, all right? The context of these issues, the royal priesthood, the bride, these are in play after salvation. These are kingdom of God issues. And as has been previously established, it is not a question of value. Everyone in the kingdom has equal value, which is why these offices do not reflect favoritism or partiality. They reflect something else. And God, in his call to his people in these last days, he's revealing what they do reflect. These offices, they reflect intimacy with him. 
and not all of the ecclesia pursue a depth of intimacy that qualifies for these positions. Case in point today, brideship. It's the same issue as revealed in the study on the priesthood and sanctity. Not all the church pursue the degree of sanctity that requalifies for the priesthood. I would submit to you that more Christians would if they knew what was at stake. I, I believe, and this is my opinion, that because the gospel has been so liberally peppered with Jesus does it all, Jesus paid it all, you, you know, that no matter how much you sin, Jesus, Jesus' blood covers it. So, and, and there's been a lost teaching and understanding of the degree of sanctity for, you know, proximity to, to God and a, a loss of teaching in the high calling of walking in the fullness of covenant mandates. But if people knew these things, I do believe they would, they would aspire to attain them. But it's like they don't even know. I didn't know. I, I'm still trying to endeavor to grow up into a lot of these things. I, in my prayer every day, Lord, show me. You know, where, where am I inferior in my walk? Where am I inferior in my sacrifice? And he shows me. He shows me. We all are coming out of this Laodicean church. No one in today's day and age, for the most part, unless you've been in the oracle, are really aware of the, the issues that are confronting believers today with regards to these places in the kingdom. But I do believe that if they were to know, it would be a game changer for many believers. They would immediately begin to look deeper at their walk and, and seek Christ deeper. So what we see here is what is being revealed. As we go through here, you know, it'll be confirmed in the scriptures as the study progresses through the bride, as it progresses through the study on the messenger of Malachi and the Zadok priest of Ezekiel. What will be seen in the unpacking is that though scripture does not state outright that this class of people are one and the same, their definition, their character, their accomplished work, their degree of sanctity, it's all identical. It's all identical. Now, these are things that might cause one to think, oh, this might be synonymous because they, they line up. This is why they bear a second look. As we study what God has to say concerning his definition of bride, keep in mind that what has been noted in previous chapters regarding the oracle of God, the oracle of God is the place of greatest intimacy. And as such, it reasonably can be likened to the bride, to the bedroom of the bridegroom and his bride. Keep in mind that the oracle of God is governed by the laws regarding sacred space, and therefore it can be safely assumed that the bride is qualified to enter so holy a place as a high priest, as a royal priest. She has navigated the holiness zones, having begun in the outer courts of her faith. She grew up into one qualified to handle sacred things well. And by virtue of her obedience to covenant mandates, self-sacrifice, and infilling of the spirit, she grew into the bride. As I've stated before, it's my assumption that if you're listening to this podcast, it's because you've read the book. So I'm not going to repeat what has already been said in this chapter on the bride. But just to clarify what is being shown through the scriptures used in this chapter, it is this. They reveal God's definition of bride, and they reveal the equipping that God has provided for his people to enable them to become, to grow up into this position of prominence. And what is being pictured in the chapter on the Song of Solomon, chapter 4, is what the bride will look like when she does this. These images in the Song of Solomon portray her character, her place of intimacy, her degree of sanctification, all of this bearing witness that she has walked in obedience to these scriptures to such a degree that she has perfected or completely completed the potential that God intends for all of his people. So I think it's fairly obvious to all in the Christian community that not all believers pursue their faith 
or their relationship with Christ to the same degree. Okay, the chapter on the bride reveals God's equipping, first with his definition, which will be the qualifying factor for his people to be the bride. Then the scriptures that when obeyed will fulfill the requirements set forth in this definition, therefore qualifying her. So what is the definition? So, and this is this, we're going to go into this a little bit. This was already in the book, but we're going to um, walk through this to clarify. She is a helpmeet or a helper suitable. These are the words used in Genesis 2, 18, 20, and 24. God defines for us the intended attributes of a wife when he describes for us his design for Adam. So let's take these words. We have three, help, meet, and suitable, right? So as a help, she is designated. Here's your uh, definition. She's a source of help. She offers assistance, a word generally used to designate divine aid. All right. So inherent in this definition is the idea of both material and divine assistance. So the Holy Spirit is called the helper. We see that in John 14. Um, but by this, it can be surmised that the bride will be filled with the spirit of God and by this reason, a helper to her husband, right? A second qualifying factor, she's a meat. The word meat means to be suitable. That is defined as that which corresponds or bears close similarity to something. It means to match or to agree almost exactly. So these are the things that we need to be looking at in our lives. And if they're missing from our lives, then that might be something that we want to take a, a you know a second look at and and um, go to the Lord and ask you know how can I change these things and God will help you He'll show you the other definition she's a suitable help meet suitable suitable means of like kind as the bride who is suitable should be of like kind as Christ the pattern son Jesus was the son of man. This favorite term Jesus used to refer to himself not only intimates his messianic rule, but that he also might designate himself as the head of the human race and set himself as the pattern of man, even as he acted on behalf of man. And we've talked about this. As the pattern, Jesus presents for his people their ability to be of like kind as him. And we see this in Hebrews 6.20. We, 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 we come back to this almost every week. Um, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We talk about Melchizedek in the final chapter of the book, but Jesus came as one. Here is your definition of forerunner. He came as one who comes in advance to a place where the rest are to follow. So we see the inherent in this forerunner ministry of Christ by definition is the expectation that believers will themselves follow in his footsteps after the pattern he has set. When they do this, that's when they become suitable. And so all this connects. That's how they become suitable. That's how they become qualified. Okay? So, and we see that God's expectation for this is established in the scriptures. John 4, 17, as he is, so are we in this world. 1 John 2, 6, the one who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. We have gone through in the book, and we've given you definitions for such words as as, like, walk. For instance, the word as, making a reference to the similarity or equality of something. Actually, what is inherent in this definition is to be suitable. The word as, by definition, means to be suitable, to be of like kind, which is an identical definition for wife. So if we are not walking as Jesus, if we're not walking as the master, then by default, we're not walking in accordance with the definition. And by these verses, it's made clear that this is God's standard. Colossians 2.6, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk you in him. To walk in a person is, here's your definition, to exhibit the nature or thought of the person. How many believers exhibit the nature of Christ? How many believers exhibit the thought of Christ? 
Well, if you're walking around saying his ways are so high above my ways that I can't ever know his ways, which by the way is an Old Testament scripture, and though in totality it is true, it cannot be a defining, limiting identity that we place upon ourselves when 1 Corinthians says that the Spirit of God searches the mind of God and reveals these things to the spirit of man, spirit communicating to the spirit that we may know the mind of Christ. And that's what we see here with the word walk, to exhibit the nature, to exhibit the thought of a person. The word in, walk in him, the word in, here's your definition, would indicate that the person to whom another is fully joined and to whose power and influence he is subject, such that the former may be likened in the place where the latter lives and moves. See, these are definitions no one's ever heard of. And because they haven't heard of them, they're not walking in it. They don't even know to. So Ephesians 3.19, you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Fullness. We may be filled with all the fullness. What is the fullness? It's the topmost measure of the power, the presence, the riches. It's the topmost measure of the extension of power and authority over a thing. In this case, it's an extension of the full authority and power of Christ being extended through the believer. Well, if this is what's going on in your life, then you look like Jesus. But if you're walking around with an attitude that you can never be like him because he's God and you're just a screw-up human being, then this isn't anything you're going to try to ascribe to become because you've got a belief system that this can never be you. You're going to be expected to walk in a manner with the equipping that you don't even know you have. That's why these definitions are game-changers. They reveal the equipping of God. They reveal the expectation of God. And they bring an enlightenment to our understanding that this is indeed what we're expected to be and that we have been equipped for it. See, patterns set by Jesus, our forerunner, is that when followed, they will take a believer beyond the veil to be of like kind as Christ. But they would require the believer to put to death the flesh to rend the flesh as pictured in the veil. So we saw in Deuteronomy 6, 3, and in Romans 3, 31, the people of God are required to keep, that mirror keep, to be careful to do, covenant. One of the numerous connotations associated with this Hebrew word keep is to hedge about as with thorns. So we're talking about Jesus being the pattern, that everything he did patterns for us. We talked about the carnage of the cross. Why was he flogged until there was not any flesh left hanging on him? Because he's picturing for his people. You cannot be walking in the flesh if you want to look like me. Because everything of the flesh that's in you, it's going to shroud and it's going to cover and it's going to smother the spirit. And as for as much of that flesh gets stripped off, that's more of the spirit that can shine and come out. So that was a stripping of the flesh. Well, he's got a crown of thorns on his head. When we as believers keep covenant by a virtue of a renewed mind, we too, like the pattern son, hedge it about with thorns. We are to be conformed to his image. And these are patterns and pictures that have been shown to prove to us that indeed we can do this and indeed we can be this so as to be as like kind as the master, to be suitable, to bear close similarity to him, such that when we walk in him, his influence and power, um, when we walk in him, excuse me, we would exhibit his nature and his thought. And our likeness to Christ is made evident by the extent of his influence and power being to such a degree that it's difficult for others to discern where we stop and Jesus starts. See, this is just nothing more than walking in these definitions. Not all believers can lay claim to this degree of sanctification, which is developed through obedience to the word, putting to death the flesh, cleaning out the mind, becoming sanctified, getting cleaned up. But it is the standard that when kept merits the description of like kind or suitable, the description that God gives to the bride. As lofty as these standards may appear, they're not unattainable. As God through Christ has provided the equipping necessary 
So although not all believers will meet these requirements and attain to this place of intimacy reserved for the bride, it is God's desire for all of his people. So as we read through the Song of Solomon, we saw that chapter 4 pictures the bride. Right? It is God, like I said, it's God's desire that we would all look like this. So what he's done then through the Song of Solomon, he has provided the picture. All right. So as pictured also in the parables, not all of God's people will respond to the call. For many, it's just too much work. It's too much sacrifice. They don't want to give up their TV. They don't want to give up their hobbies. They don't want to give up their language. They don't want to give up their entertainment that might perhaps be um, a little bit non-sanctified. You know, they're happy just to be in the kingdom, and they spend their life frolicking in the outer courts. And that's fine. This is not a salvation issue, but it certainly is one of brideship. And as we go through this, this, this book and as we go through these definitions, we discover is the bride is a first fruits company. She is the foremost, the finest. She's the best of her class or kind. These are all definitions and descriptive words used in definitions associated with the bride. And um, I'm not sure about you guys. I know I've heard people say things like, well, I might just be a trash collector in heaven, but at least I'll be there. Well, let me tell you something. The bride ain't no trash collector. And if this is all you're, you're going to aspire to do, that you want to just get in by the skin of your teeth, you got your little fire insurance card, you know, and you've said your prayer, and you are maintaining covenant at the bare minimum, that's permissible. But even as the Jewish father was only going to choose the best for his son, God is only going to choose the best for his bride, and he's not going to be choosing a trash collector. You know, forget the fact that there's no trash in heaven. So um, basically, in conclusion, I'd like to walk through Revelation 17, 14, as this also makes very clear distinct distinctions inherent in some believers over others. So as we go through and we read Revelation 17, 14, it says, These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are the called, the chosen, and faithful. So what we're seeing here, that I find fascinating, it says the Lord, the, the, these will wage war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. The Lamb does not overcome those who wage war against him simply because he's Lord of Lord and King of Kings. So certain he could, he has chosen not to. He makes it clear here that he overcomes for two reasons. He's Lord of Lord and King of Kings, and he overcomes because he's Lord of Lord and King of Kings, and he overcomes because those who are with him are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. The chosen. I want to look at some definitions here because these these are th th these are game changers. The chosen means to choose or to pick out for oneself, not necessarily a rejection of those not chosen. So we see here that those who are with them are called and they're chosen. Think as you're going into the produce department of the grocery store and you're going to buy apples and peaches, and you're standing over the display and you're picking out for yourself your apples, you're picking out for, your, for yourself the fruit. You're not picking out the bruised, the scabbed. You're not picking out those that are of inferior quality. You are choosing and picking out for yourself the finest and the best. You're not rejecting the others. You don't pick this up and say, oh, I reject you, oh, I reject you. No, your hand is just reaching for that which you would choose to pick out for yourself. That is the definition for this word chosen, to pick out or to choose for oneself, not necessarily a rejection of those not chosen. That's why this is referencing those in the entire assembly of God with regards to the bride. Nobody in the assembly is rejected. But when it comes to those who are with Christ in this battle of Revelation 17, 14, these have been picked out. The grammatical composition of these adjectives 
um, called, chosen, and faithful is this, the called, the chosen, and the faithful, okay? This grammatical composition is such as to emphasize the superior quality of that singled out as being above the common usage or understanding. In other words, it is to communicate that these adjectives are the choice, the best, the foremost of its class or kind. Okay, it's called anarthrous. If you look in your Bibles, they'll tell you this is the anarthrous grammatical structure, and that's what that means. It's they're singled out as being above common. It's the choice. That's why it's not those. It does not say those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Because so those that are with him are the called and the chosen, right? So um, what we see here is some called in this kingdom are not the choice. They are not the select. They are not the best of their class or kind. This is also part of your definition. They are not, here's your definition, preeminent as applied to certain individual Christians. Okay? Now, all, all the Christian, you know, all the apples are part of the assembly, but some of them are bad apples. And they're not chosen. So both of these chosen, okay, what we're seeing here is we're looking at this verse, is that these chosen, this is the choice ones, and they are distinguished out from among the chosen. Again, this is not a salvation issue, but rather one of rank in the kingdom, as patterned in the Old Testament. This position of rank based on service, sacrifice, and purity pursued by each believer, as we saw in the priesthood, Okay, pursued by each believer individually, these are the select ones. These are the choice ones. These have navigated through the holiness zones and are of close proximity to God. Let's look at the word faithful. This is also a game changer. Faithful, as noted um, in this verse here, is distinguished more by its verb tense than by its definition. You would look at the definition on faithful and it would not be anything distinctive. But in this, in this um, verse, we see that the faithful is in the passive voice. What does that mean? It means the subject here, the faithful follower is a subject. The subject is being acted upon, meaning these things are being done to them. The faithful are the ones in whom faith or trust reposes. So the definition of faithful is to rest in, to trust in, to repose in. That's the definition, to rest, to trust, repose, okay? And, but it's in the passive voice, so it's saying that these faithful are the one in whom faith or trust reposes. The one in whom another can trust, those who can be relied upon, all right? So these faithful servants, these servants, <laughs> these faithful servants, can be relied upon to faithfully execute the commands given to transact the business of the kingdom of God. They can be trusted in to have maintained a high degree of sanctity, to maintain a high degree of being suitability, being just like a high degree of looking like Christ. We all look like Christ to one degree or another. The question is, do you look like Christ to such a high degree that you are the select, the foremost, okay? The use of the passive voice communicates the idea that those numbered among this select group can be relied upon and trusted in by Christ, as opposed to the active voice typically used to indicate a believer's trust, rest, and faith in Christ. This reminds me of those of the royal priesthood, those who are coming at a deeper level a greater intimacy into the oracle of God. These are not the ones running into the oracle, you know, as a child of God in their time of need. These are the ones who are entering into the oracle as a royal priest. At this point, they're not in need. They're coming in to serve their king. They're coming in to minister to their God. They have established within themselves a high degree of sanctity, so they have access to this most holy place, and they do not contaminate it with their presence. They come armed with the Urim and the Thummim and the Rima word of God to hear the spirit of God, to understand the heart of God, to go out and to serve their king. 
These are warriors ready for battle. These are high priestly who don't make any concessions for profanity. It is their job to preserve the sanctity of God's holy space, and they will see to it that nothing of inferior quality passes beyond their presence. And these are the faithful, as so described here, a type of select group who would be, even as the mighty men of David, those men in whom the king of David could rest in the midst of battle to attain victory. Christ isn't going to go into battle against the demonic hordes with a bunch of people so filled up with demons themselves that they can't stand firm in battle, that when they go to battle against the enemy, the enemy within their very own vessel is going to do them in. Jesus is not going into this battle to be surrounded by an army that's falling prey to their own sin in the midst of battle. These victorious warriors will not fall prey to their own sin because they have cleaned their vessel and they've made no concession, which is why they can stand against the enemy because the enemy has nothing in them. Jesus said as the pattern son, the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. And those of like kind, those who are suitable, this is their endeavor, endeavors. This is their daily striving. This is what they're always trying to attain and achieve a greater and greater degree. The enemy has nothing in me. And through this endeavor, through the intimacy of the oracle, hearing from God, little by little, day by day, they're getting their vessel more and more clean. They are not numbered among the company of Amos chapter 3 who hoard up violence in their citadels. They have cleaned out their citadels. We see according to Revelation 17, 14, that Christ overcomes this battle. Because of the degree of faithfulness in those who are with him, that qualify them to be called out from among the called, to be the choice from among the chosen, which is why they've been able to attain this coveted position by his side. This is what these scriptures are revealing. And the first century believers who are reading these letters understood these verb tenses. They understood these definitions. They understood what was being communicated. Finally, and what is of interest to note, is that when these descriptive terms that we're going to be seeing used in Song of Solomon are defined, they picture character traits that can be easily categorized as being of either a high priestly complex a qualification or help meet suitable qualification. We're going to go into the Song of Solomon. And like I said, this, this chapter on the bride gives the definition of what the bride is. And really, the definition is this. <laughs> there's nothing, you know, there's, there's no profanity that she allows to remain in her. Is she completely clean? Well, no, perhaps not. But she is completely clean of everything that she knew to be there because she doesn't tolerate it and she kicks it out. So it's a continuous move. It's a continuous growing up into maturity. No, we've not arrived. No, we will never arrive. It's not a question of arriving. It's a question of when it's made known to you. Do you kick it out and do you clean it? And are you as clean today as you can possibly be? And if you're not, are you going to Jesus and saying, help me? I'm trying and I need you to help me become clean. I need you to help me grow up into the bride. I want to be your bride. You want me to be your bride. But until I'm emptied of myself, this cannot be, and I need you to help me empty myself. So that's, that's what's going on here. And so as we look at the Song of Solomon and go through the definitions of the words that describe the bride, these definitions, they are a picture of what one would look like when they're operating as a help meet suitable with the complete definitions operating in her life. And as such, then, she does, by default, begin to acquire high priestly qualifications and help meet suitable qualifications. Because these character traits, these descriptions, the work that she accomplishes and the qualities that allow her, are, um, the, the qualities that are in her, these allow her to be positioned in the most holy place. And we see that they're intersecting. Her character traits, they intersect with the high priest. They intersect with the character traits and the, the work of the royal priesthood. And therefore, it can and must be considered 
that the royal priest and the bride of Christ are indeed one and the same. This is how they intersect. So none of this is, none. there's no intersecting character traits. You know, um, when you're talking about the church, the general assembly in general, the general assembly, the church, the ecclesia, there's everybody in the assembly has varying degrees of sanctity in their lives. But we're seeing that the bride, she has the highest degree because of her intentional, deliberate volition to pursue Jesus to the greatest degree. So those would be the bride that has come out from the church. So that's all I'd like to just say, you know, and to finish this up and to wrap this up, Adam, is that these character traits, these descriptions, the work that gets accomplished when you're operating it to this degree of obedience, they do intersect. All right. And so therefore you do see by reason of that, that these could be synonymous, the bride and the royal priesthood. But, you know, they're not synonymous with uh, a believer who's operating in the outer court realm of functioning. So it's tough. It, it, it's a tough concept to wrap your mind around. I encourage anyone listening, again, you know, put this, just take, this is information. That's all it is. So now it has become a resource. That's all this is. This is information. It's become a resource. Put it in a little box and put it on the shelf. And understand that it's always there and ask the Holy Spirit for clarification and for confirmation. And if God is beginning to show you through his spirit that this does indeed come into play in his kingdom, then you can begin to take this off the shelf as and weave it into your understanding as scriptures confirm, you know, what's being said. So that's just my that's just my exhortation, and I just would conclude by saying, what's at what what's at stake here? What's at stake? Well, there's many things. There's you know, we all say, oh, we're going to rule and reign with him. We're going to rule and reign with him. Well, if you look at the, at the at Revelation, it's the bride coming down out of heaven. She's ruling and reigning with him. But not everybody in the nations are ruling and reigning. They're coming. They're coming to the holy city. And you know, we all say, you know, we're going to be this royal priesthood that rules and reigns. And we all say, oh, we're going to be the bride. And if everything that's being taught in these lessons is not true, then fine. You're in. Don't worry about it. You're all, we as, all, as a church, we already are not worrying about it. <laughs> that's the point. Nobody's worrying about it. I wasn't worrying about it. But if what is being shown through, the, through God in these last days is that this does need to be considered, then truly what's at stake is an eternal place in the kingdom forever. Ask yourself, what is it you want? And then be willing to receive Anything that the Lord, that you know, the Lord is saying, hey, I'm going to write this on your dry erase board of your mind. This is something that needs to be, this is something that needs to be conformed to your understanding. You need to repent of old belief systems. And, you know, if all this is true and we don't walk, if, if it's not true and we don't walk in it, we're still the bride, we're still the royal priesthood. If it is true and we're not walking in it, we've become disqualified from a position that we didn't know we needed to be qualified for. But what's the most, what is the most um, significant consequence, really, is that these are the qualifications that get you into the oracle. These are the qualifications that get you to the most greatest degree of intimacy. What's really most at stake that's the most significant, it's that intimacy with God himself. That's what's most at stake. And it's that intimacy that in the last days it's going to overcome when these last days descend upon us. And the overcoming is going to be done in the spirit, from the oracle, through the, through, through the relationship, and by reason of being positioned, even as Psalm 91 
under the wings of the Most High, the most intimate place, in the shelter of the Most High, in the refuge of the Most High. So, you know, my prayer is that the citadel, me, my vessel, that it would not be filled with the violence of Amos 31, but that my vessel, my temple, would be a place where Christ can come and where he can rest, where he can repose, and that my vessel would be one in which he can trust. And when it becomes that to the Lord, then that becomes bride-quality vessels. You, everyone wants to repose in their spouse. Everyone wants to trust in their spouse. No one wants a spouse that is a loose cannon. You're not quite sure what's going to happen when things start going south. Are our vessels one in which the bridegroom can repose? If our vessels are one in which the bridegroom can repose, then we're the bride. So that's it, Adam. <laughs> no, uh, you said a lot, and it's so important, too, that we take these things to scripture that that's what we i just heard you say it's just like hey you know what if you if you let's say don't want to take our word for it that's good don't take our word for it go to the very word of the lord and on top of that you know there was so much that was said and a couple of verses that came to me is is this you know i'm looking at song of solomon chapter 5 verse 3 and this is when the bridegroom comes knocking on the door and you have the woman who's there and she's like, oh, I've taken off my robe. Must I put it back on again? And I mean, I just washed my feet. You know, you hear these, these things that she's saying and that is laziness, you know? And then when she finally gets to the door, he's gone. And it's so important that we don't fall prey to this laziness, to this idea that we're not in a race here. You know, and that's what Paul was stating. He's like, we're in a race. I want to win the race. And that's what we need to have, this mindset that we need to have. And what are we truly pursuing? We're not pursuing gifts. We're not pursuing all, like all this other stuff. We're pursuing him. Our eyes need to be on him, running to his arms. And I cannot stress that enough. I've said it time and time again about intimacy, intimacy, intimacy. This is the call to his bride for intimacy. Because if we lack this intimacy, if we lack this pursuing him, what we've done is we haven't yielded ourselves to him fully. And it's about yielding yourself to the Holy Spirit. And if we look at Revelation 19, verse 8, it says, She was given clothing of fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen she wears is the righteous acts of of the saints. The only way you can do righteous acts is through him and your submission to him because he will do it through you. You see, that's what a lot of people don't understand about the Cain and Abel situation. They're like, oh, why, why Cain? Why Abel? You know, oh, it was a blood sacrifice. It was all these things. I will say this, and yet again, Take, take it up with the Lord. You've got Cain, and he was working the land. And then you have Abel, who was, yes, tending the sheep, but he was at rest. It's not like he had to do anything to the sheep, to the lamb, or to the, that sacrifice. That was, that was all done by God. Where you have Cain who was doing it and working it and doing and trying and striving and then handing it over to him, handing it over to the Lord. But that's not, that wasn't a good offering. Why? Because it wasn't by and from the Lord. It wasn't the Lord doing it through him. He was relying on his own strength to get there. 
where it's kind of the Mary and Martha situation, where Mary chose to sit at his feet, to look at him, not to even say he was, she was silent before him and she was getting to know him and she chose the good portion while Martha, who welcomed him in, then got caught up in trying to serve him, trying to clean up, trying to do all these other things for him, but not with him, where Mary chose to just rest and be with him. And she loved the Lord. She loved the Lord. And so, is this where we hit a slight crossroads? How much do you love the Lord? How much are you willing to give up? Do you still want to hold on to you? Do you still want to be kind of a vessel that's slightly full? I mean, this stuff's passing away. We're getting ready for a wedding day. What should be on your mind right now? And like Debbie said, you know what? If, if we're not right, from, from what we're saying, if this, if this, you know, let's say, isn't right, it's not going to hurt anything. It's just trying to get you to run faster, to go after him even more. It's kind of like this. It's the whole pre-trib, mid-trib, you know, post-trib mindset. And I'm preparing. It's kind of like this. I'm preparing for, let's say, let's say the post-trib is, you know, a half a marathon. And then... The mid-trib is a 10K. And then the you know uh, pre-trib is a 5K. And God's like, you know what? I'm going to choose one of these. I'm going to choose one of these. Which one are you going to prepare for? Well, I'm going to prepare for the half marathon. So you heard what we had to say. I'm going to prepare for him. I'm because I'm sold out with by him. It's only by him that we have life and life in abundance. There's no other source. We're caught up in so many different things. There's so many distractions out there. And I can honestly tell you, I was very distracted. And then all of a sudden the Lord brought me to a place of be still and know me. And that's how transformation happens. By being still and knowing him. And it even calls us, you know, we're talking about a mindset here of, and I've said this before, you know, I want my my daughters to marry a man who is worthy. Okay, now let's let's go back even further. So let's even go back to if I have a son. I want him to marry a woman that best suits him. And I will tell him to be patient, to wait, to not rush into anything. You know? Where we are called to be mature. That that's perfect. We're called to walk blameless. Now, if you believe that this cannot be, well, then Scripture clearly states it. And that's the kind of bride that the Lord is looking for. That they have just a heart for Him. That they're willing to risk everything for Him. To run the race for Him and run it well and keep. It's a, it is a race. I'm not going to get caught up in, in laziness or distractions. I just want Him to be... I just want to be with him. And this is this upward call to be the bride. And you start seeing it in more places, this distinction of three. Outer court, inner court, holy of holies, most holy place. And you start seeing this all over scripture. And you start thinking to yourself, which one do you want to be? Where do you want to be? If you're happy with where you're at, by all means, stay with where, where you're at. 
if you want more, this is the time. Do you have any other thoughts, uh, Debbie? No, no, you nailed it. Okay, well, uh, with that being said, we are uh, moving on. Uh, what chapter is the, the next chapter? Uh, I believe it's, is it the Song of Solomon or we, uh, is that? Chapter, chapter 15, the Song of Solomon. All right. Yeah, so yeah, chapter 15 is going to be the Song of Solomon. Uh, definitely looking forward to unpacking uh, what that has to say and how this all ties into the royal priesthood, this upward call. And yet again, thank you so much, Debbie. And I look forward to talking to you next time. Thank you, Adam.